Hey, this is Jason Overcome Redmond. Thanks for tuning in to the JR Overcome Show. If you love this show, we would love for you to do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a five-star review, leave a comment, and share with your friends. Everybody wants to be on top of the mountain. The problem nowadays is people want to get dropped off at the top of the hill and look down. It's that I overcome mindset that makes all the difference. See, the way we're taught is you're going to claw, you're going to scratch, you're going to bite, you're going to dig, you're going to do whatever it takes to get to the top of that mountain. That unequivocally is how I have managed to keep myself moving forward and finding success. Two seals, one mission. The JR Overcome Show. And welcome back to the JR Overcome Show. This is episode 13. We are rocking and rolling along. And uh, I got to tell you, man, though, a little bit, Ray, what's up, brother? <laughs> you and I are, uh, we, we both are dragging a little bit because we have been on the go. Been burning at both Dude, ends, bro. Really, hey, we've been burning at both ends. We've been burning the candle in the middle. Shit's on fire all around. You look like you. You look like I feel. Yeah. You look like shit right now. You, I'm not gonna lie, so sir. Ray, Ray flew the red eye back from uh, uh, Viva Las Vegas. Shot show, and uh, and I flew back. I was up about three a.m. to. Uh, I was at the airport at five to fly back from Dallas for some things I had going on there. So we are in go time mode. And uh, hey, tell me about Shot Show. How was Shot Show? Man, I had a bunch of people text me and like, dude, where are you? And I couldn't make SHOT Show this year, but I definitely will be out there next year in force. But, uh, Ray, you had some good times. I saw that you uh, I saw that you got under the grasp of a legendary MMA expert, world-renowned. Who did you meet? I met the GOAT. I met Royce Gracie. I've actually met him a few times. We had some fun. You know, he's, out, he's a big shooter. I don't know if a lot of people know that or not, so I introduced him to... Um, one of the optics companies that sponsor me. What company is that? That's right on optics. Right on optics. Boom. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. And I hooked him up with some individuals and got him some, some guns that go boom, boom. And we had some fun. I was signing autographs. True story. I'm going to tell the guest this, and we're not going to say who the guest is yet. And he's going to mystery. It's a mystery, mystery man. I was signing some autographs, and Mr. Gracie come by, and yes, I still call him Mr. Gracie. Fifty-two years old, he's an animal, and. I signed one of my things and it, it said, Royce, I taught you everything you know about BGJ, BJJ, <laughs> love cash. And he read it. <laughs> he goes, oh, I taught you how to shoot. And he, if you guys go to my Instagram page, you'll see it. He gave me a choke out. And then when he read what I wrote, he was like, oh, really? So he locked it in a little harder and uh, started to put your, me your, out. Your face was definitely a little red when you tapped out. Yeah, it was I great. It, you know? it was good. But on a serious note, I hung out with him. I was hanging out with uh, Dakota Meyer, hanging out with uh, Real World Tactical, the who's who of the industry. Bill Goldberg, one of the nicest people I've met. He's with Two Lamb. Um, they did the new show. They're doing the new show. Uh, what's that? Forge and Fire or Forge and Steel. The Knife Show. They're great guys. Um, you name it, man. We were hanging out. We were... Working all day, networking, and I was burning it pretty late at night, catching up with Sean Ray and a few other guys that we went to Buds with. Oh, nice, man. And it's funny because time just, before I knew it, it was Wednesday and it was time to go home and I realized I only got about two hours of sleep. So I'm not pissed off today, I'm just tired. But uh, great times. SHOT Show is epic. It's it's literally a reunion of just the brotherhood. And here I am now, a five-hour energy drink. And yes, even though I'm a fitness guru, I actually had tacos and a soda to try to stay awake today. So shame on me. We'll work it off in the gym. Tacos, soda, and a five-hour energy drink. I'm so, a fucking mess. Hey, but it's all about getting back on course. And uh, that is what this show is about. It is about leadership. It is about overcoming. You know, at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. Even Ray Cash Care, as much as he wants to tell you he's perfect, he's Shut really your mouth. Not, sir, sir. he's really not. Respectfully speaking. And uh, sometimes, sometimes even Ray Cash Care has to get back on track. So uh, that's what life's about. It's about driving forward. It is about leading always and recognizing that sometimes when you get a, bit, a little bit off course, there's nothing wrong with that. You just pull your compass back out and you go, hey, man, what are my goals? Where am I going? And that is what this show is about. We are continuing on this idea, this culture of success in 2019, we are interviewing amazing people with amazing stories, stories who are out there making a difference. So, uh, so yeah, I want to jump into that today. And uh, Ray, today, as we always have, the word of the day. Um, what is the word of the day today? The word of the day, sir, is trust. trust. I say again, trust. So the definition of trust, and again, ladies and gentlemen, we always talk about, I'm taking this right off the Webster's Dictionary, and then obviously our special guest tells you how the word resonates with him or her 
and what it means to them, but trust, to have confidence in something or to believe in someone. Interesting. Trust is an amazing word when it comes to leadership and teams. So I'm going to kick it over to our new guest. But first, I want to introduce this individual in the legendary JR Overcome Show fashion. This individual, I got to tell you, the very first time I met this individual and how he introduced himself. So many years ago, I was on the battlefields in Iraq and I was shot by an enemy sniper and killed. This was the way he introduced himself. And you listen to that and you're like, wait a minute, man, you're, you're, you're standing on stage talking to us. But it is such a powerful statement. And the journey that he went through from crushing through this moment to an incredibly low point in his life, struggling with so many of the demons that are out there, uh, and then driving forward and finding success and helping to heal people through so many of the things he's doing is absolutely mind-blowing. He is a friend of mine. He is a leader out there making a difference in other people. He is a number one best-selling author, and uh, we're going to be getting into all of that. He has delivered hundreds of talks. He's been featured on CNN, Fox News, the Oprah Winfrey Network. He has done a TEDx talk. He is out there uh, getting his degree right Right now, and he is making a difference. He has worked for some major companies. You want this guy to come out and speak for your company. He speaks on emotional resiliency. He speaks on emotional leadership. He speaks on the asymmetric mind, which is his company as the CEO and leader delivering amazing training and consulting to companies across the country. He is, well, he, he is a West Point grad. We'll let that slide. You know, I know Army's been kicking our ass. Once again, I'm going to reiterate, we're letting that happen. But this guy is incredible. And everything he speaks on, I'm going back to the foundation of our word of the day. It's built upon trust. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to introduce the author of The Beauty of a Darker Soul, CEO and founder of Asymmetric Mind LLC, the legendary, reborn, twice dead, Major Josh Motz. Yeah, baby. Welcome to the JR Overcome Show. So we're going to kick things off fast and furious, man. Trust is the word of the day. You have nailed it. You have said trust is the foundation of everything I teach. Josh, what does trust mean to you? And let's kick off our first discussion. You know, it's it's such a such a powerful word, right? A single word that we, we hear all the time, right? But what what really happens when we trust someone, right? It is is we're becoming vulnerable with that person. Right. And we're, we're surrendering that vulnerability of ourselves with the expectation uh, that the person we are putting our trust in is going to honor that, respect that. Right. And the, the, the point here is that any leader at, at any echelon in any context is is charged with that responsibility. Right. Um, so, so it's it's much more than a word here. It's it's a it's a concept that's infused within every dimension of leadership uh, within every organization. Uh, and 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 something that uh, any leader should cherish uh, if if their subordinates are are willing to trust them. A lot of people I don't think think about that. A lot of people don't think, and and it's just inherent in leadership. It's inherent in teams. You know, Ray and I go all the way back to the very beginning, going through buds together, and it literally it was that trust that enabled us to know that that guy next to me, he was. He had his he he was carrying the weight. His head was under that boat. He was helping. He was encouraging. It was the trust that we knew that no matter how bad things got, the guy to the right and left for me was still going to be there. And that continued throughout our military careers. Josh, I know you felt it, and I can't think of any higher levels of trust than the incident that you incurred on the battlefield when your team uh, literally brought you back. And, and to the combat support hospital and then the trust in the team that tried to save your life. I, I, I want to go back and I want you to tell that story because it is such a powerful story. And it really is a story of trust because those individuals, they went past, um, they went past key points that really 
they were beyond the normal benchmarks of trying to save somebody. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they should have stopped because according to medical knowledge, they would have said, hey, this guy's dead. There's no way he's going to come back and be okay. And literally, whatever reason, they the trust they had in you, the trust they had in their skills, they said, we're going to keep going. So, hey, man, take us back to that day, 2006, Iraq, the day that forever changed your life. Yeah, so that was, um, it was, it was actually April of 2007. Uh, you know, just a couple months before you were hit, Jay. Um, you know, an enemy sniper engaged us, uh, killed my senior non-commissioned officer, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, uh, and then ricocheted into my upper right thigh and severed my femoral artery. Um, so the, the the very brief version of, of this is, uh, essentially, I have full recollection of this entire experience and, and, until the point that I took my last breath and, and flatlined about 30 minutes later. This was occurring in northeastern Baghdad, uh, very close to Sadr City at the time of the surge, right? Uh, kind of arguably the most, you know, the peak of, of combat operations in, in Iraq, at least, right? Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that day, obviously, our, our mission was grounded in counterinsurgency operations, right? Where, where the the mission essentially, what was decisive in that environment was gaining trust with the local population um, in this chaotic environment. And, uh, you know, that day we had just come off a humanitarian patrol uh, where we were delivering school supplies and clothing to a bunch of uh, kids in the local community. And we got diverted from that patrol uh, to another part of the sector. And uh, essentially, we were we were lured into a very complex ambush, very well executed ambush, um, w w using sniper fire and, and mortar rounds. <clears throat> uh, and and that's that's basically what set the context for for that day. Uh, we, we were myself and Staff Sergeant Harper were out on the ground, uh, interviewing an Iraqi gentleman, and and because of that, we're essentially fixed into place. Um, which is what the sniper used to exploit us in that attack. And, and sir, what some people, I don't know if they're familiar and they haven't been overseas, but obviously femoral artery is a very dangerous animal if you get hit. And statistics say an individual can bleed out as quick as 20 seconds all the way to two minutes. Yep. So what I want to put in perspective is most people don't recover from something like this. People have but a lot of things have to be on your side to make this happen. I mean, you know, depending on the elevated heart rate, how much the blood's, the heart's pumping. I mean, I actually lost a friend overseas um, who got hit. So I can, I can relate to this. Um, he got hit in the leg and instead of, uh, you know, trying to take care of himself, what did he do? He stayed in the fight with his brothers uh, about two minutes and five seconds later. Uh, he's no longer with us. So I just want people to understand the severity of, you know, when they hear an injury femoral artery, and this is a bullet and with all due respect that actually went through someone else and still did this type of damage. So you need to understand the caliber of which, you know, this in the, you know, the bullet size and trajectory and speed and just sheer power of what these, these rounds can do to individuals, you know, I mean, so I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want people to have a clear understanding of what the hell is going on with what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's an important point to draw out, uh, Ray, this, this was to our knowledge, at least this was the first time we saw, uh, a caliber this large used on dismounted troops. It was basically an anti-aircraft weapon that was converted into a sniper rifle. Um, so the, the, it had that bullet hit me first, I wouldn't even have a leg. Um, but to, to suggest that it, it, it went through Marlin first, fused to his armor plate, and then a chunk of metal about the size of my fist blew out my femoral artery, basically down to the bone. Uh, another, another piece, uh, ripped off and actually hit the interpreter, uh, which was a minor, minor injury. But, you know, you, you can imagine in that moment, uh, you know, what, what's, what's strange, I can really resonate with what you said about your friend too. Uh, cause that's, that's really the spirit of the American service member, right? Amen. Amen. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, and I kind of experienced that myself. Uh, this wasn't an intentional response. It was instinctual. Um, but you know, my first reaction was to drag Marlon out of the way and, and started to perform aid on him basically until I passed out, which is when my medic arrived, wow. uh, close to the two minute mark, <laughs> you know, and it's, 
And, and Josh, was that, did you realize the severity of your injury at that time? Did you, I mean, you, I'm sure you were like, oh, I got hit in the leg, but obviously, you know, it's a mess when we get hit. We're just, I mean, we have no idea. Yeah. Um, so you were just like, I got hit, but I got to save Marlon. Now the, the body, the body is amazing. Um, in these moments, you know, it, it, we, we kick into survival mode and, you know, we've all heard of the fight, flight, freeze responses, right. And, and when our autonomic nervous system kicks in and our bodies just take over and, and that's really what happened. I had no idea that I was shot. Um, I, I just knew that something felt a little wrong. Uh, my sensory perceptions changed. It, it things things fluctuated between slow motion time, fast motion time, auditory distortion. Again, all this happening over the span of about thirty seconds. And you're you're sitting here, and you know you're really downplaying it, but I just think that warrior mindset kicks in, you know. And you know, there's hunters and gatherers, and brother, you're a hunter, and I mean that. There's two types of people in the world, and when you see a brother down, I mean, a lot of us can relate. Obviously, I haven't been injured like that in battle, but you know. Everything comes before you and that's, and I get emotional and it's rare that you see me get emotional, but I, I can, I understand what you're going through because of what happened to my friend and obviously Jason and you, but people need to understand. I mean, these are life ending injuries and this is, and I'm sorry, I mean, it's all due respect, sir. This SOB is still trying to pull his brother, you know, to safety, putting his own life at risk, even more so, which, you know, it, it, lights are going out. It's just a matter of when you blacked out. But I just wanted people to understand in my eyes, this is an heroic feat. And I know people like you and Jason go, no, it's not. This is just every day at the office. But I mean, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you got half your leg missing. You've got, you know, you get femoral artery, you got two minutes to pretty much live and that's being kind. And the first thing that you do is you're pulling your buddy off the X, getting off the X. I love it. And I just want to give you a mad respect to you, sir. Means a lot coming from you, brother. Thank you. What, what's interesting, and I and I think is what's what's hard to conceptualize here is right when when an injury like this takes happen happens, and our, our our bodies essentially go into automatic mode and take over. Emotionally, I look back on that, and I'm I'm grateful that I responded the way that I did. Um, now, th- the question is, what led to that? You know, and and this is this is what I think is even more important is is that. When we reach adverse moments like this, and obviously this is an extreme example, but it applies across the board, right? It is attributed to the dedication, the discipline, the pursuit of of who we are in these professions, right? And everything that leads up to that moment, the mind is predictive, right? The brain is predictive. And and in 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 those extreme moments, it's going to do what it's been trained to do, right? And we we find, especially when we're on the the verge of death, what is most important emerges, <laughs> right? Amen. And and everything Amen. else falls away. So I, I I think that's um again you know something that I say on the on the psychological trauma side something that I say is uh, frequently is is that you know psychological trauma it's it's not about getting shot, right? It's about the threat of getting shot. Uh, you know, it's not about it's not about being in a firefight. It's about the threat of being in a firefight. You know, it, it's it's this constant state of ambiguity and tension that, that military personnel and first responders live within that they have to learn how to harness in order to thrive in these environments. That's what counts. You know, and and, and when the time comes for something like this to happen, right? We all of the training, the dedication, the discipline, hopefully, kicks in. And, and, and a situation like this is, is revealed, right? And, and Josh, and there's no doubt it did. Your team jumped in, you know, and unfortunately there are really tough decisions that have to be made in battle. Decisions that sometimes carry lifelong emotional and mental scars. One of those decisions is they realized that your team leader was, was dead. There was no way that they could bring him back. And that, that's a triage moment that medics and leaders have to decide. You're unconscious. Uh, I think at this point you might have still had a faint pulse and they basically loaded and took you uh, directly to the combat support hospital. At what point, when they brought you in, at that point, were you already flatlined or did you flatline on the table? And then I know, walk us through the sequence of what happened because it really is a testament to that team that worked on you because 
I guarantee in a normal environment, they probably would have stopped because you were past all benchmarks that said we should keep trying to save this guy. Yeah. So let me take you through. So remember when, uh, speaking of trust here, I I don't know that there's a more powerful way to demonstrate it than this. You know, when I drug Marlon out of the way, kind of dropped in, I ripped off his gear, right? And and see this huge hole right over his aorta, right? Just, and and a few seconds later, my 19-year-old medic arrived, right? And I, and I think in that moment, even though not knowing that I was severely injured, right, but, but something about me sensed the safety that came with that medic. And it, 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 it kind of, for whatever reason, I collapsed to the ground due to blood loss at that point. So it, it's almost like a signification that I trusted that medic, you know. But, but maybe even more important is as my team was dragging me into the nearest vehicle to evacuate me, um, you know, and we're, we're in crisis mode, right? And I, I remember in, in that moment when I collapsed to the ground, I wasn't completely unconscious yet, but I, I, I went into what I can only describe as a state of subconsciousness for, for the next few minutes. And as I was in that, I, I, I very distinctly remember feeling like I was falling into a deeper and deeper sleep, just relaxing, right? It, it was actually very peaceful. And I kind of heard my team dragging me you know, I could hear my body scraping along the desert floor, and I just kept falling into a deeper and deeper sleep. And I remember thinking in that moment that there's nothing more that I can do, that that my team has this, it's in their hands, right? And then I, I think one of the most important things uh, happened in that moment, and and one of my team members noticed I was about to go unconscious and yelled at me at the top of his lungs. He's like, come on, sir, stay awake. And in that moment, despite the condition I was in, right, I could hear the emotional pain in his voice. You know, all the other grunts and groans of the team members came back into my conscious awareness. And I realized in that moment that I was still the leader of that team, right? That, that I, didn't, I didn't have the right to just check out and, and, and fall asleep, right? I, I, I had it. to do where I could. I love it. You can relate to that. I, I speak to that. I can't relate to that, but I mean, the minute you said that, I literally got chills because of Jason, because he's told me some similar things. It's it's so amazing how your stories, even though they're so different, they're so alike. Well, yeah. you can lead, I mean, really, it is your attitude and your mindset. And just by, uh, you know, somehow figuring out how to hang on, you know, it gives others strength. Uh, right. Because And on the battlefield, those, those are such critical components. Hope is one of the most powerful forces that exists. And, yep. and to know that there is hope that a teammate is still trying to hang on and give everything they got, it'll drive other people to do amazing things. And, and Josh, I really think it was hope that drove that emergency room crew, that combat support hospital, because I, I just want people to understand this story. I, I am blown away by this story because this story easily could have turned once or twice. They started working on you when they got into the operating room. And and, and, and cor- please correct me if I'm wrong. I think they got you in there and you had flatlined at that point. Like literally you were dead and they started working on you. And there, there is a time clock that doctors and professionals look at. And, and Josh, I know my time's maybe off. You can speak to this, but like five minutes is that first uh, waypoint. And, you know, if, you're, if you've been dead for five minutes, at that point, we're like, the flow to the brain is just, you know, it's not happening. Now we're venturing into brain damage state. So typically after five minutes, they stop working. The next waypoint is 10 minutes, like almost nobody ever comes back and is able to mentally think and not have brain damage if they've gone past 10 minutes without blood flow and and oxygen to the brain. And then that last waypoint, would you say it's 15 minutes? It's like a virtual impossibility, like million to one odds that anyone would come back and be able to do anything. You hit all three of those waypoints. And they kept working on you. They believed in you. They trusted in their team. They were not going to let you go. Am I telling this story correctly? Yeah, you, you got it. You know, by, by the time I got to the aid station, fortunately, we were in, you know, the middle of Baghdad, pretty close to, uh, to that medical facility, right? So, so um, if this happened in Afghanistan, I'd probably be dead uh, just because we would have been far more remote. But um, no, Jay, honestly, the, I was very fortunate to be conscious when I got to that aid station uh, because 
that is the moment where I really learned what it meant to be a member of a team. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a thing in military culture where folks in the combat arms professions, right, infantrymen, um, special operations, whatever it may be, kind of have this chip on their shoulder, <laughs> right? And, and sort of a, a <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you right? what are you talking about here? <laughs> what special operations being seen as arrogant you've what? seen how great my hair looks i have a mirror at all times with me sir jesus all right how dare right. you yeah. yeah a little bit of a chip right but it, it's all unhealthy competition right but but kind of, there's kind of this sort of attitude that people in the combat arms know what combat is all about everybody else is in support of them right and the the, the thing is that day i saw a medical team execute the most well-rehearsed battle drill I have ever seen in my life. Uh, they were calm, cool, collected the entire time. Uh, they were well-led by the brigade surgeon. Uh, everybody had a specific job and task. Watching them was like watching a choreographed dance, right? And, and it, it gave me an enormous sense of comfort, uh, even though I was only a few minutes from death at that point. You know, um, Obviously, despite their very best efforts, uh, I, I did go on to flatline on the table, right? And and Jay, just as you captured, you know, most uh, most most surgeons will call it on a on a patient who flatlines after about five or six minutes, because the the, the capacity for severe brain damage to set in is is like exponentially higher at that point, and and something something inspired this team to keep going for 15 minutes. And people need to understand, Josh, like you had no heartbeat during that time. It wasn't no, it was like they brought you back and they kept working. You were down. Literally for almost 15 minutes, you were totally dead. flatline dead. Yep. Clinically dead. Uh, so, so it's now obviously like I remember everything up until, you know, that, that transition point, what it was like to die. I'm going to skip that for a moment and, and, go to the point about two days later when I woke up in the green zone. Um, and this, this is the point where details of what that medical team really did to save my life were revealed to me. And, and, and more details have emerged over the last 10, 15 years. But um, a lot of strange things happened that day. <laughs> you know, number one, the, the defibrillator paddles that they used to shock me back to life literally arrived at the base that very morning. Uh, you know, wow. they had to plastic to use them on me, right? So, because we were in a very rogue, rudimentary care facility uh, with, with very basic life-saving equipment. More importantly is because it was such a rudimentary facility, they were focusing on me on, they were working on me on a cot, right? And and there was a mechanical failure of the cot. So, so they were unable to lower it to the proper height to get the leverage needed to do CPR. And it just so happened that the one person who could reach happened to be a former football lineman named Private First Class Tipton, uh, who weighed about 260 pounds and was six foot six. Damn. Right? And, and it was Tipton and Tipton alone who did CPR on a live victim for 15 minutes straight. And I, for, for any of you who've ever, if anyone's ever been exposed to doing live CPR, right, it, it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, you know, most people smoked after two or three minutes and Tipton kept going for 15. The medical team pulls off this miracle. They get this faint pulse back after 15 minutes. They grab the cot. They start racing me out to the Blackhawk, which was running hot on the landing zone, uh, getting ready to evacuate me to the green zone for more advanced surgery. But as they were rushing me out there, they were greeted by my scalpel tune. And this is the experience that still gives me chills to this day. That scalpel tune who is now being led by a young staff sergeant uh, who had just lost both of their senior leaders, right? Stopped that medical team right before they got to the Black Hawk and said, he's our lieutenant. We're putting him on that bird. Nice. Damn. It, it wasn't your day. It wasn't <laughs> your day. I mean, it wasn't your day to die. No, man. Honestly, this was this whole experience. It was like one of the most positive experiences. It was the most positive experience of my life, as paradoxical as that may sound, just because of these kinds of stories that emerge from it. Right. Like the power of the human spirit, man. These guys took this took this stretcher. They loaded me on the Blackhawk. And with that, they took control back. That was stolen from them from an enemy sniper just a few minutes prior. Wow. Right. The surgeon in the green zone. Um executed a perfect vascular surgery the first time out the gate. 
Um, they administered over uh, close to 30 units of blood to save my life. Your body only holds about six or seven. So I, yep. like, I kept bleeding it out. They you were li- you literally blood. are a new person. Man, <laughs> it, <laughs> got a little change. Yeah. Here's the point, right? Here's the point. Every single step of that medical evacuation process from the 19-year-old medic on the ground to the nurse back at Walter Reed was absolutely flawless. And I'm only alive today thanks to a mosaic of well-led teams, a mosaic of leaders, all of who chose to do one more thing in the face of extreme adversity. Ray, mosaic is a a group of individuals working together. (laughs) It's like a team. Salute you, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) So- before we change focus, I got to ask you a crazy question and I want to know what you think. And again, I, I'm not trying to step over any boundaries and I, I don't think I'll ever be able to ask any other person on earth this question. <laughs> so what was it like to die? And, yeah. I, and, and when I say that, I know I kind of, when I get emotional, I mean, so far I've literally got goosebumps and I've actually had tears come out of my eyes. This is a very powerful episode that we're doing. It's and, amazing. And do you remember, I mean, do you remember anything? I mean, because- you just told me, and I, I want listeners to understand this. I was dead for 15 minutes, and this is the most positive thing that's ever happened to me. I mean, are you insane? And I mean, I understand what you're saying by it, but holy shit. So do you remember anything when the lights were going out? And I mean, I'm saying this as respectful as I can. Do you remember oh, yeah. anything? What was the last thoughts in your head? I mean, you know, because people don't get this chance to, I, I've never, I don't, I'm probably never going to be able to ask anybody this question again. Yeah. You know, number one, I I didn't have uh, what I would call a traditional out-of-body experience, right? There was no white light. There was no floating above my body, right? I don't you remember the You didn't see Ray? You didn't see me you with didn't a, see Ray a, care on a you? horse? <laughs> I didn't see Ray with a shirt off. Riding it, yeah. Now. There you go, sir. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to all our listeners, we're sorry. Ray is not as great as he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to lighten the mood because it is a very powerful thing, but I'm serious. Go ahead, sir. I apologize. This is probably the most pivotal question that uh, I've ever... One, it, it, it took me 10 years to kind of get to this answer, you know, and... Um, what I did experience, uh, and I'm talking about this precise transition point from life to death, right? As I was taking the last breath and consciously knew I was taking the last breath, like a breath before that, my very last and final thought was of my family. Uh, threw up this silent thought, this silent prayer, please take care of them. That was it, right? Which is interesting because in that, Jay, I think you and I were talking around this, uh, around a campfire a couple months ago in Arizona, but... It, 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 again, if we come back to kind of trust, right? It, it's like imagine, imagine the vulnerability of being a minute from death, right? Knowing you're about to die, and and having no other choice but to but to simply ask something much greater than ourselves to take care of our family, right? I, and I was there too. But what I will say, right, is, is that that actually. So this is what I mean by what is most important to us emerges in those moments. Like Jay, I know you had a similar experience with your family. Tim Brown had a similar experience as the nine eleven towers were collapsing. Um, so, so I think that's important to remind ourselves of uh, is this this love of family, right? This love of the brotherhood, camaraderie. Um, but that being said, with the with the last breath, uh, the only way I can describe that is a feeling of absolute and complete surrender uh, to something much greater than ourselves. And, and it, was, it was through that surrender uh, that came this overwhelming sense of peace. And, and this is the paradox here. It wasn't, like, um, it wasn't like just all the bad things disappeared, right? It was all the good things, right? All the good, all the bad, all the positive, all the negative, all of it gone. And it, and it was as if the spirit becomes part of everything and nothing at the same time, right? So, so this is what I mean by the moment of my death was the most peaceful experience in my life. The challenge was I didn't know how to process that back then, right? And, and this is really where the true journey of undergoing adverse experiences begins, right? Transformation and growth does not occur because of what happened to us. It occurs because of our response afterwards, right? 
the journey afterwards to transform, to understand our past and to grow from it. And, and Josh, man, we, we could talk so much about just the incident and what happened in that operating room. I mean, we could spend hours and obviously we try and keep the show around one hour. So what I want to, I want to jump to that journey because what you did is, is just absolutely amazing, but it also, I think contributed to a little bit of what I call a life ambush. Uh, so you like, like me survived this real world enemy ambush and, and, and you, you literally left out of it. I mean, you, you, you survived, they sent you home, they fixed you and your sole focus was to get back to your guys and get overseas. And you made it back before the end of that deployment. Uh, but then you hit a wall. So I want to hear about that. You know, you, you were just, you were, you were trying to focus so hard on moving forward. You hadn't quite processed what happened. And all of a sudden it was the mental and emotional demons that reached up and tried to choke you out. You know, man, addiction comes in many forms. Um, you know, when we hear the word addiction, we think drugs and alcohol, right? But there, there's there's many different ways that we tend to innocently gravitate towards running away from our past, even if we're doing it inadvertently, which is most often the case. You know, the the... The thing about psychological trauma and adversity is, is that it's it's we've made a lot of headway over the last you know decade or so, but it's still highly stigmatized. It's highly oversimplified. It's very much misunderstood. And, and what what I mean by that is is when most of us think of psychological trauma or something like post traumatic stress, uh, we tend to think of it in terms of what are called hyper arousal symptoms, meaning being anxiety, nightmares, night sweats, being jumpy at loud noises, uh, you know, having to sit with your back at a wall against the restaurant, right? Like, this is what most people's perception of trauma is, right? The, the challenge is, especially inside the military and first responder professions, um, these populations have been shown to display a much higher degree of resilience in the face of what we call traumatically life-threatening situations. Right, fear-based situations such as a gunshot or a firefight. Um, more resilience versus people outside of those populations. What's much more difficult to handle and, and, and gain a grasp of is the two other sources of trauma, right? It, which is called traumatic loss, dealing with the grief process of, of losing those that we love and that we serve with. Uh, and the second is, is moral injury, um, which is a stigmatized term in and of itself, despite its accuracy. Um, you know, now when I say the term moral injury, some of us may jump to the conclusion of thinking that I'm talking about committing an egregious war crime. And, and certainly that qualifies, but that is at the far end of the spectrum. Um, what I am talking about instead here is uh, sources of guilt, shame, powerlessness, betrayal uh, that we all experience uh, throughout, especially in the modern operating environment. Um, so the, the question is like, what was it that was driving me as I was laying in a hospital bed to go back, right? I, I was pulling staples out of my leg with a Leatherman multi-tool. I was pulling documents out of my medical records. I mean, there was nothing that was going to stop me from getting back Love to my it. team. I, I can relate to that. I want to get back to the boys. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's like, uh, it's not, not unique to me at all, right? As you were saying earlier, it, it, it the, the question that I, I had to come to understand is originally I believed that I was trying to do that uh, just to get back to my team, <laughs> right? Just to continue to serve, uh, partially to prove to myself that I could get back on the horse and still do my job as an infantry officer, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the thing that really emerged over time is that there was another side to that coin, right? And that was I was being driven by guilt, by shame. Right. And, and what I mean, guilt is extremely complex. Um, again, many different forms. For example, it's not like when I was on that medical evacuation uh, flight back to the United States. It's not like every minute was a minute closer to home. It was a minute farther away from my team. And, uh, you know, when I was in the hospital, <clears throat> despite how bad this injury was, it was all muscular. Right. I, I, I basically made a full recovery. And, and I was one of the only people in that entire hospital expected to make a full recovery. Um, so, so one of the images that I will always remember and, and honestly have no desire to forget is, is I remember walking around a corner at Walter Reed Hospital 
and I see this beautiful young girl in her early 20s pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair. And, and it's an image that just riveted me. Uh, so like part of the guilt that I was experiencing here uh, wasn't just because Marlon died and I lived, right? It wasn't just the desire to get back to my team. It was a guilt surrounding my ability to heal when others couldn't, right? And, and that's that's kind of one of just the intricate things that um, the more that we learn about ourselves, right? The more that we have the strength, the courage to dive inward and process our past, uh, the more things like that become revealed. And, and, you know, I know you guys will appreciate this. I, I refer to guilt and shame as being the insurgency of the mind, right? It, it, it starts like a form of cancer. You know, at, at the beginning, it's in stage one, but it starts to subvert us and, and control our behaviors in ways that we might not be aware of. So right now, I, I think, man, we have so many listeners right now that are, that are riveted, but I think it's really important to make this relatable uh, to all of them, because man, people go through all kinds of incidents. They've had all kind, everything from emotional trauma to verbal trauma to sexual trauma. And I know that's something, you know, you, we have talked a lot about this uh, and this guilt that people carry to try and overcome these, these um, oftentimes physical, mental, and emotional wounds is it, it can devastate people. And you are doing so much now to open their eyes with this and to help people through this, through your incredible journey. Uh, so much so of what you told in your book, The Beauty of a Darker Soul. Can you help people understand that are out there right now that are struggling, that are what I call sitting on the X after some major event, how that is relatable, what you were talking about, the insurgency of the mind? First of all, let's remember that that trauma and adversity doesn't discriminate, right? It, it, it comes in many shapes and forms and it impacts all of us from every walk of life. Uh, so, so even though the nature of our experiences may be very different, uh, the emotions that manifest from them can be very similar, right? Um, so, so what I'm saying here is, is that uh, adversity is also very relative based on our current worldview and our experiences. Uh, to me, getting shot, honestly, like this, there's no bravado in this statement. It honestly was not, it wasn't a big deal, right? As, as many people assumed it would be because it looked like such an obvious event on the surface, but it was all the things that surrounded it, the things that you and I experience in everyday life, right? I had much, a much greater challenge navigating relationship failures, financial distress, uh, living with an incurable disease, right? Crohn's disease. Being an entrepreneur and starting a business, right? Here's the deal. Adversity, one of the staples of adversity is that it's known for trapping us in our past. We, we relive experiences today as if we were going through the adverse experience of the past. Part of the thing that, that causes that barrier is, is whether it's conscious or subconscious, is, is fear. Our bodies naturally drop back, our minds, they drop back into this protective state so that we can encounter adversity like that again and not be surprised by it. The challenge is when we want to innovate, if we want to drive organizational change or drive our teams to change, we have to learn to disrupt, asymmetrically disrupt the way that we think about our past. And and this, this is kind of the, the bottom line here is theoretically, right? Creativity is the inverse of psychological trauma. It's the inverse of adversity, right? And, and the, the real strength comes from uh, being able to, to learn how to lean into ambiguity and embrace adversity rather than remain trapped in our past. And this is, I mean, this is dead on the concept I talk about with uh, the life ambush and get off the X. I mean, so many right. people dwell, they sit, they're overwhelmed, they dwell on their past, they look at what they've lost, and, and they're, they're, they almost find comfort in the discomfort. They get comfortable sitting in this guilt and this pain. And it's really, it's frightening to look at the future because they don't know where to go. It's almost like they get comfortable sitting there, but you have to, you will never move past it. And, and Josh, I think that's exactly what you're talking about with finding that creativity to drive forward off the X, off this incident. Right on. So, you know, I got a question. What is Josh doing now? You know, we talked about, and make sure I say this right, sir, asymmetric mind, your company, you know, let's talk about some of the, the awesome things you're doing. You know, you're 
and I obviously I know what you're doing, but you know, you're chasing a degree. That is something that you have to talk about and it's amazing. And me and Jason are kind of still trying to figure that out, what you're doing with your degree. It's awesome. And and talk about your speaking. I mean, you're you're talking to all these amazing companies and you've got this great message. I mean, tell the listeners what's going on with Josh now. Uh, you know, Ray, on the it's it's difficult to train leadership on PowerPoint slides, and, and uh, we we, we kind of hear so much about words like like trust, and and yet what we really need is 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 ways for people to understand how to build trust, you know, in order to feel it. And one of the one of the parallels that I've made is I actually help organizations understand how to build trust through the lens of asymmetric warfare, specifically counterinsurgency, right? And that may sound crazy, but but the, the truth is today that in, in, in an insurgency, counterinsurgency environment, uh, success on that battlefield isn't necessarily won through overwhelming firepower and tactical superiority. It's won through trusted relationships with the local population. So the, the, the essence of this is, is that if we can build trust with with members of a local population in one of the most chaotic environments in the world, what are the factors that go into that that can apply to the corporate sector, right? And and there's there's an incredible parallel between kind of the theoretical orientation of asymmetric warfare and what companies are doing with their employee engagement strategies uh, that can help enhance organizational inertia and really start to drive that creative change needed to. Uh, to innovate and overcome adversity. Josh, to better illustrate this to everyone out there, because I know that for a lot of people and, and you know, military, we're, we're so guilty of using all these different terms and acronyms that people are like, what? So asymmetric warfare, counterinsurgency, all these things which are foundational doctrines that really were brought about that helped us win the war – you uh, really affected some incredible change on the battlefield because of the way you did this. So much so that you built trust with the local Iraqis that you got out there and you made a difference. You did things that some military units just weren't willing to do to really get out there and interact. You're an incredibly smart guy. You, uh, you were learning Arabic and you were using it. You were getting out. And what did the locals start to call you as you built this trust? Because this is exactly an illustration of making a difference. This is asymmetric warfare, understanding that we cannot win, you know, with a bat. Uh, oftentimes it is our ability to convince someone that this way is better. Uh, violence, always the last resort. Man, if you can bring people together with compromise and a team, uh, it will go so much further than trying to just beat them over the head, kill them, whatever it is, oftentimes the ripple effects of that. So tell me about this, because it really does illustrate this idea of what we were trying to accomplish there and what asymmetric warfare is. Yeah, you know, I know we're diving into a, a really complex topic here, right? And I, and I, I get that. Um, but yeah, after about, after about eight months or so, like not not too long before I got shot, I learned that the Iraqis had a nickname for me uh, called Hisan al-Abiyad, which, which means the white horse. And in, in the Middle East, the horse is a symbol of hope, right? And um, so it, it was a, I was very surprised to learn that. The question is, how do you, how do, you do that, right? God, it is a story in this day and age where there's so much division. Yeah. Where, I mean, God, look at our government right now. We're not willing to compromise. Whereas you got out there and and you did it so well that the individuals that saw us as invaders called you the white horse, the symbol of yeah. hope. So I, I think this is a really important point for people that are trying to drive change and trying to lead teams, especially teams that sometimes don't aren't seeing right, eye to eye. Right. Well, you know, it may be helpful. Like, let's talk about what an insurgency is, first of all, right? It's an insurgency is a subversive, illegal attempt to undermine or overthrow an existing government, right? And and the, the challenge of an, for an insurgency, right, is that in the beginning, they are they are lacking resources, right? They're lacking manpower. They're, they're undermanned. It's a David versus Goliath, right? So, so if an insurgency was trying to overthrow an existing government, they have to start in secret, right? And, and in the beginning, they are only survived through their secrecy. The challenge for the military coming in 
right, is that if the insurgents blend in with the local population, if there's no way of distinguishing them, then we have no way of distinguishing between friend and foe, right? So, so the challenge is how do we, um, in order to overcome, overcome our enemy, we have to be able to identify it. And in order to be able to identify it, we have to gain the intelligence necessary to find them. And the only way that that intelligence comes through is by building trusted relationships with the local people. Now, that, that may sound simple on the surface, but let's remember that insurgents don't play by the rules. They exploit, they rape, they torture, they kill, they kidnap. They will do anything necessary to stop the population from working with us, right, with the counterinsurgent force. So in many cases, even if the local members of the population wanted to trust us, which many of them did, they couldn't, right? But because the moment we'd leave their town, the insurgents would come in and start to exploit them, uh, you know, kidnap and torture and coerce them into not working with us. So, so we're dealing with, you know, especially in that environment, we're, we're dealing with these intense barriers to even beginning to build trust, right? So, I mean, overcoming that really begins with uh, understanding the power of, of the human spirit, right? Human connection, um, language acquisition, right? Learning Arabic, that was the most powerful weapon that I carried in the Middle East. Um, developing cultural competence. Uh, all of this is directly applicable to corporate settings, right? Josh, how, how do you do that? I mean, how do you make that relatable right now to our listeners that are out there? How do you translate that? Because I know that there's so many people right now, they're like, wow, so how would I do that within my company? Right now, we're trying to do X, Y, Z. You know, how do I build these? Sure. Things? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an intricate process. It is a journey that occurs over time. Right. This is something that unfolds over time. The point here is that in order, what goes into establishing a trusted relationship, right? That is, it's, it begins with a shared mission and purpose, right? A clear understanding of why we're doing what we're doing, uh, agreed upon goals and tasks. Uh, it focuses on the importance of expressing empathy, right? Truly understanding the concerns of of your local people within your organization, finding out what's important to them and why. Uh, and also expressing the humility, humility to know that um, that it takes an entire ecosystem of people to make an organization thrive, right? So those ingredients, right? All of this comes down to building trust, doing that in the face of uh, a constantly changing dynamic, right? Which in, in today's world, everything is becoming increasingly complex, increasingly specialized. So, so the challenge is how do we how do we blend all of the efforts of all these individuals together and lead them towards a common goal? Great story. I'm just glad you explained what white horse means because the definition I have white horse is something completely <laughs> different. It's a street term trying to lighten it up. You know, I was thinking you were like some cocaine or heroin uh, drug pen over there. <laughs> what I want to talk about is your degree and your degree is the degree of consciousness. What and the, did yeah, I say that yeah. right? Okay. Because it's, it's a big word consciousness. That's three or four syllables for, for the E-man. I'm really, One, I'm really proud of you. You said it so well. Go to hell. Respectfully I'm, I'm speaking, really sir. I loved how you built, uh, how you built it out. And I watched Did as you notice spoke, how it went from the drug, touched, the drug king of well, Iraq. And not to, only that, but you touched on each syllable with your finger as you said it. I had to count it out. <laughs> but my question is one, and I cannot probably re uh, relate to it. Why did you choose that degree, which I've never heard of before? I had to look it up. And two, obviously I'm, I'm guessing it had to do with do we call it a near death experience or do we call it a 15 minute death experience? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's I don't no, know what the problem. There's no near death about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't there know what to call that. Just but death. So can you kind of elaborate on that, sir? Yeah. So there's about 20 different ways I could start to answer that question. So consciousness, one, it, it does, it makes sense for the dead guy to study consciousness, right? What originally made me gravitate towards this is is over the years doing more and more speaking, I'd get these really profound questions from people about wanting to understand the nature of life, right? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What's the larger purpose in this whole thing? Obviously these, these like impossible questions that we have. And um, I, I felt like a responsibility, um, not only to them, but to myself, to think about this in a more structured manner uh, that they can hopefully start to tease out some, 
some deeper truths about the deeper questions we're asking ourselves about, uh, you know, some of the most important questions surrounding life. So there's, um, you know, when we talk about transformation as a whole, there's, there's, there's like something in the air today, uh, collectively, as, as a society that are getting this hunch that people want more right? They, they, there's this yearning to understand more about life as a whole. Approaching the topic of consciousness, philosophy, cosmology, mathematical cosmology, uh, there, there's just some tremendous parallels that give us the capacity to think about the meaning of life in a much deeper way. That's probably the broadest way that I can answer that question. And you know what? I appreciate it. Where can people find you? Yeah, best place is just hit me up at asymmetricmind.com. On on Asymmetric Mind, they can find you. They can find your book, right? Beauty of a Darker Soul. If anybody's out there and they've gone through uh, any kind of physical, mental, emotional trauma, this is a great book. Josh carries you through his journey, rock bottom, climbing back out and really coming to understand what it is to be human and uh, to, you know, really to find your fullest new potential. And I think that's critical. Everybody's looking for that. So, Josh, you crushed it. Josh, you're helping veterans. Uh, you're going out soon to speak at the National Veterans Wellness event, right? Right on. Yep, they're hosting a big event out there. That's uh, one of the nonprofits that I support. They just do great work out there in helping people transform. So hosting a big event uh, here in a couple of weeks out in Angel Fire, New Mexico. Up in the mountain. Well, I definitely need to get a signed copy of your book. Every individual that comes on here that has a book, that's kind of the, that's the plug. You can't do the show unless I get a signed (laughs) copy from you. So I definitely got to get one. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to this. This has been an amazing show. I mean, geez, you know, I've met a lot of incredible people, Josh. You and I have become friends. We've had some deep conversations. You are a incredibly intellectual, deep thinker. Uh, which is really amazing. And you were, you were helping a lot of big companies. I mean, you worked for Tesla for a while. So now you're, you're doing, you're uh, trying to reconnect with them. You're looking at companies in Silicon Valley and you're talking to them about these idea, this asymmetric warfare of the mind and how we can overcome it. And I think that's just incredible. Uh, you know, your story, 15 minutes dead and come back. Uh, and to be as deep a thinker as you are, I'm thinking that maybe we unlock some parts of the brain. Me, when I got shot, I had two brain cells. And uh, when I came close, it left me with about one and a half. (laughs) So you, you actually got better, which is absolutely incredible. So we want to wrap up the show with the question we like to ask every single person uh, on this journey, this culture of success. Ray, would you do the honors with our last question for uh, Mr. Joshua? Sir, Mons. yes, sir. If you could give people three pieces of advice for success, what would they be? Go. One thing that drives me is uh, having a constant uh, desire to pursue wisdom. It's it's almost not right to say acquire wisdom, right? Because it's 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 arrogant if we do that, right? It's it's counterintuitive, but the pursuit of wisdom is is a different thing. So I'm constantly seeking to to learn more, to push myself to new limits. If I'm banking on my past experiences today, then I'm irrelevant. So I'm, I'm, I'm constantly seeking to kind of disrupt myself and, and stay fresh. Not to mention that that also expands our worldview and, and could potentially make our skill sets applicable elsewhere. The other one, which I probably won't hit on as much because your audience should be very familiar with this, but it is obviously establishing a daily practice. Jay, your your expertise here, you know, both of you, far more than mine, but adversity is known for giving us the feeling that we are out of control of life. In virtually any circumstance, there's always some things that we do have some degree of control over, but that that starts here, right? That starts with us individually and leading ourselves first, you know, through, through the uh, the pillars of self-leadership. And then I guess finally, the the thing that um, has has honestly emerged for me now as being more important than ever is seeking to really solidify your purpose in what you're doing. Especially as an entrepreneur, I, I um, you know when I when I left the private sector, made the decision to start this company. Uh, it it has been the most difficult two years of my life. Um, for, for a multitude of different reasons. And I'm, I'm literally, I'm comparing this with the near death experience, right? I'm comparing this with all the other stuff going through the process of being an entrepreneur was the most difficult thing that I've ever done. Um, the biggest reason for that, it took me a lot longer than I thought it would to be able to really pin down a clear vision, right? A clear purpose that is tolerable to the private sector. 
Um, so short of having that purpose, there was this unanticipated sense of invalidation that that came with it. You know, not a single day went by that I didn't want to hide in a corner and cry, that I didn't want to tap out, that, you know, but uh, to, to find that strength to keep going is what's most crucial, right? And I believe you guys on the SEAL side call this segmenting, <laughs> right? But it, it's, it's like, uh, I, I'm reminded by a quote of uh, Lieutenant General Hal Moore, who was uh, featured in the movie, We Were Soldiers, played by Mel Gibbs, right? And I, I had the real pleasure of seeing the real General Moore speak when I was a cadet at West Point, uh, not long after 9-11 happened. And, and one thing General Moore said that day that has always stuck with me is, is that regardless of the situation that we're in, regardless of the level of adversity that we're experiencing, there's always one more thing we can do to influence any situation in our favor. And after that, there's one more thing we can do, right? And, and after we do enough one more things, the opportunity starts to open up to achieve the original objective. I don't speak on anything that I don't personally practice myself, but that is a piece of advice that I've had to fall back on myself many, many times over the last couple of years. Uh, to keep moving forward. Oh, yeah. Nice, man. And that's what it's all about. Getting off the axe, driving forward, understanding who we are, what our purpose is. I love it, Josh. So we're going to wrap things up with uh, what we do, which is our two-minute motivation. Our word of the day is what? Trust. Trust. So, uh, Josh, the way we do this is each one of us takes one minute and we shotgun our thoughts on trust in a highly motivating fashion to fire up our listeners on how to implement this in their lives. Who's going first? You want you want me to you want me to kick it off? You got it. Go what do you first. want to do? What do you want to do? What do you do? First. You look tired, man. I want to look hear what you, you got to say. Hat so I can backwards. Top you. Hat on backwards over there. Trust. Trust is the foundation of everything related in leadership. We must have trust with those we lead. We must have trust in our teams, and from trust comes communication. Our ability to tell others what we are doing, how we're going to do it, where we're going to go, and when it's going to happen. And it is trust in our people that we know they are going to execute it because it is what they do. It is what teams are built on. Every single member of your team is a leader. And as the leader of the team, we trust them to be leaders, to lead the different components of what they're doing. Trust is the foundation that enables anybody, anyone from small organizations to individuals to the largest organizations that are out there to be successful. So if you are listening to this, trust in yourself, begin to believe in yourself and that will filter to others. Your trust will grow and you will find success. I'll go second. He kind of, he copies a lot of what I'm thinking. <laughs> he has that ability to do that. I read your notes. Ladies and gentlemen, trust is the foundation where everything starts from. Not only do you have to trust in individuals because you have to, you have to build trust. You have to earn trust. You have to grow trust with people, but you also have to do it within yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You have to trust yourself in order to trust others. You can't go through life, you know, just believing in one thing and not, and nothing else. You have to develop bonds, brotherhoods, friendships. It all stems from that one word and that's trust. You have to build that foundation with individuals because you never know. It doesn't matter where you are in life. Everybody has daily firefights. Everybody has daily battlefields. You have to know that the people that you're putting in that inner circle, the people that saved your life when you were flatlined for 15 minutes, you have to know that when the shit hits the fan, when there's chaos, there's turmoil, that the people that you have built these relationships with will have your back. Sir, we're going to leave it to what I would say, probably the original OG goat of trust. Go. <laughs> right on. That was awesome, right? You know, look, whether we're navigating through adversity in the present moment, whether we're transforming an organization to become better, or whether we're trying to resolve our past, trust is the single most independent variable, single most important variable that's associated with a positive process of transformation. And that's the bottom line. Boom. I love it, man. That was awesome. Oh, did I just steal don't, your don't boom? You did know. I steal your don't boom? Don't you ever steal my <laughs> boom. That's my, I've got that trademark. Oh, no, sir. Oh, I, I've got to pay a royalty. Infringement. To but there's, yeah, that's, there's something there. It's going to happen for that. Go ahead. This has been another episode of the JR Overcome Show. Episode 13 with Major Josh Montz out there. Asymmetric Minds, LLC, author of Beauty of a Darker Soul. If you want to find out more about Josh, go to asymmetricmind.com. Book him for speaking 
or any of his Asymmetric Mind Leadership Workshops. He is an amazing individual, living proof that you can come back from some amazing traumatic events. So I want you guys, if you believe in this show, if you love this show, go to the JR Overcome Show website, jrovercomeshow.com, and you can support us. Make a donation. You can support this show because, hey, man, it takes dollars to do this. We got the amazing producer, Ryan, and we are cranking these shows out. I want you to also go to iTunes. Go to iTunes. I want you to subscribe to the show. And I want you to leave a five-star review. If you love this show and it's motivating and inspiring you, if you are living for Ray Cashcare, Jason Overcome Redmond, to fire you up and motivate you towards leadership and overcoming, tell us about it. It makes a difference. Every review we get helps this show. And then lastly, go to Twitter, JR Overcome Show, at JR Overcome Show on Twitter. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us what's your favorite show. Tell us what you like. Tell us people that you think this individual would be amazing for you to interview or Jay, I wish you had asked this show to Josh, whatever it is. We want to hear your thoughts. I'm watching it. I want to see what's going on. Ray's watching it. So once again, this has been the JR Overcome Show. I am Jason Overcome Redmond. And I'm Ray Cashcare. And we are out. Boom. Thanks for listening to the JR Overcome Show. Tune in next time and please remember to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please visit jrovercomeshow.com. Hey, this is Ray Cashcare. Thanks for listening to the JR Overcome Show. If you love the show, ladies and gentlemen, we would love for you to do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a five star message, leave a comment, and share with your friends. Boom.